Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. We're going to begin our Advent series with the genealogy of Jesus. Bear with me, okay? Sounds so fun. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You ready? Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Minadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, was the, father, Solomon the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Shiltiel, Shiltiel, the father of Jerubabel, Jerubabel, the father of Abiud, Abiud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Eliud, Eliud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus there are 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. And this is God's word. You still with me? Matthew uh, chapter 1, it's not the sexiest text. And so it's easily overlooked. But what you don't see is that the author is tracing out the central storyline, the backbone storyline of the Bible. And he's giving us clues. He's showing us clues which tie the entire storyline together. Because, you see, in the ancient times, your genealogy was like a resume. Today, if you're looking for a job, if you want people to know who you are, um, you let people know what schools you attended, what degrees you've earned, what credentials you have, where you worked. But Matthew doesn't begin with where Jesus studied or where he worked or his credentials because his focus was on Jesus' family. And the focus was not about what you accomplished then in these ancient times, but what your family had accomplished. Not what you did, but what your family has done. Not your work, but their work. And so the family name, which is what you see littered all through Matthew chapter 1, that family name was the resume. And so Jesus' family line teaches us four things, very quick things. One, that we can find true fulfillment. Two, that we have a place. Three, that we can experience ultimate rest. And lastly, four, the power to get all these things. Fulfillment, 
a place, rest, and power. It's pretty relevant in our day, even after this weekend, right? We're all looking for rest, right? So one, we're going to start with fulfillment. Matthew chapter 1 begins with our genealogy. And the genealogy shows us facts, history, because what Matthew is doing is he's not giving us, he's not just telling us a story. He's not just giving us a fairy tale. He's not telling us some legend like the Epic of Gilgamesh. He's telling us news. The gospel is what? It's good news. Now think about this. Every great fictional story, why, when you watch a great fictional story, why do they resonate with us? Why does it get us? It's because great fiction oftentimes satisfies some deep human longing that nonfiction often is not able to satisfy. So if you take fairy tales like Sleeping Beauty, fairy tales like Beauty and the Beast, what's the storyline? That the curse, there's this curse, and the curse is reversed through true love. You take a story like Superman, a savior from another world steps into our world. You take stories like Lord of the Rings. You have the true king is not who you think he is, but some scruffy man who's sitting at the back of the pub with what? 51 generations of royalty behind him. Every great story contains themes that get you, themes that move you. And it moves your heart uh, because your heart is so not yet satisfied. In other words, we love these stories because all that we know, well, think about this. We love these stories really because we know deep inside there is a curse. The world is a broken place. It's a dangerous place. We all want and desire, long for a love in our lives that will never die. We all want victory over evil. That's why some people are so driven by causes, because we want victory over evil. We want justice to rule over injustice. We haven't seen that in our day. We haven't seen it on many levels. We want to believe that there's such a thing as kingliness. That's why we look to our leaders and we hold them up so high. We want to see true kingliness and that one day that king will come to rescue our world, to restore our world. One day everything that's broken in the world can be healed. We want to believe that. You know, in Lion, the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, written by C.S. Lewis, um, you have this one scene where these children, they, you know, if you know anything about the story, they go through this magical wardrobe, and they end up in this whole magical, fantastic place. And there, they meet Mr. Tumnus. And Mr. Tumnus kind of gives them a little bit of a background of how, in this world, everything is frozen. But, he says, look, and he points, and he sees the drippings. It's starting to thaw out. He says, spring is coming. It's the fulfillment of a prophecy, an age-old prophecy, that Aslan, the king, will return. If you listen to stories that are well-told, you know, podcasts or watch it on TV or you read them, if you listen to stories that are well-told, they're so fulfilling. Why? You kind of you sigh. You don't want it to end. I, I know people here who, who watch uh, movies or shows, and they just want to savor every portion of the show. They want to savor it. They, they don't want it to end. Why? Because when they're well told, deep inside, we know that even though you're older, even though we're all adults, we want these themes to be true. Fiction stirs something so deep underneath that our hearts really long to believe are true. They get you. They get at you that way. Your mind says, no, no way. This isn't true. Critics say, no way. Scholars say, you got to grow up. 
You gotta, you gotta avoid these types of stories. You gotta think for a moment. Because these stories, they're an opiate. These stories, they're just an escape. But what does the genealogy tell you? The genealogy tells you Christmas means that the true king has come. A savior from another world has entered into our world, has stepped into the earth. The curse of sin is already reversed and has been reversing because of true love. Through Christmas, you see the story of ultimate sacrifice. Through Christmas, you see the story of real love. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. He gave his one and only son. True sacrifice, true love. Through Jesus, you see real courage. Remember, the, remember Braveheart, that movie, Mel Gibson? Uh, towards the end of the movie, Mel Gibson is arrested. He is in chains. He is in prison. He's about to be executed. And so the princess shows up and gives him this elixir that if he takes, it will dull his suffering. You won't feel the suffering. You won't feel the pain. So he, he refuses it. She, says, she begs him to take it. He finally takes it. And as she walks away, you see the silhouette. He spits it out. And it just gets us. There's this great hymn uh, about Jesus. We don't sing uh, hymns like this uh, because the music isn't as good anymore, but the lyrics are so rich. There's one part of this hymn. He says that Jesus Christ, he drank the dregs of God's wrath. You know what dregs are? Dregs are the pieces left in a tea. When you're sipping tea, those pieces that are left. And uh, it's still got a little bit of power in it. So you keep pouring and pouring and steeping the tea so you can drink the leftovers. That's the dregs. The hymn says that Jesus sucked out, just drank from the dregs of God's wrath. He wanted to make sure there was none, no wrath left behind. And through Jesus, you see victory, the resurrection. It sounds magical. It sounds fantastic. It sounds too good to be true. Jesus on the cross, he looks to this criminal who says, will you remember me while they're suffering on the cross? And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. You can't read a story like the birth of Jesus. You can't read a story like the, the crucifixion of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus and say, ah, oh, that was nice. That's just another great story. You can't do that because it's not another great story because unlike all the other fairy tales, Unlike all the other legends, unlike other fiction, even good fiction, this story, Matthew is saying, is true. Would you start fiction like the way we just read? Would you start it that way? Gospels were more than just literature in its day. The Gospels were verifiable accounts. They're eyewitness accounts that were verifiable. All it would take is one person to prove and discount the account and the narrative would never have made it out of the first century, you see. So you can't just read these stories and say, oh, that was nice, because this story, unlike others, are true. Because it's true, this story then becomes the central reality to which every other story that you love, everything you like about any story points to the reality, the truth of this story. That's why it's there. That's why we're reading it today. That's why we're looking at it. It's what our hearts sense. We believe that something like this exists. We believe, we want it to be true. It's what our hearts long for. And what that means is a couple things. One, Jesus Christ is the embodiment of every ideal. If you're looking for power, if you're looking for love in your life, if you're looking for healing in your life, 
Jesus Christ is the embodiment of these things. So you have to take your story, your story of suffering, your story of shame, your story of guilt, and we're going to kind of unravel this, but you've got to take your story and you've got to plug it into, reinterpret it into the story of Jesus because Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that story. He's the end of that story. He's the promise that we've longed for, that we've long awaited promise, uh, shadowed only through these great fictional stories that we watch and we kind of gush over and sigh over. You've got to look at the kingliness of Jesus. You've got to trust in his victory. That's first. Number two, what that means is that because it's true, the story isn't, these stories that we read, it doesn't just give you good advice. Now, if the story wasn't true, if it was fiction, why would you believe or obey anything that's written here? But if the story is true, why wouldn't you believe everything? Why wouldn't you obey everything that's written in here? If, the, if a king in the ancient times wins a great war, if a king wins a great war, what he does is he sends messengers. Messengers because there was no internet. <laughs> There's no news stations. There weren't even loudspeakers. So you'd have people standing in the corners of every street in the country, and they would run through. They were heralds. They were messengers. And it would basically say, this happened. The king has won. You are now free. You are a free people. It's good news. They call that a gospel. And that's why at the birth of Jesus, God sends what? Angels proclaiming what? The good news, proclaiming the gospel. That's why you see so many angels all through the first several chapters of these gospel stories because angels were inherently messengers. The message is what? The king has come. That's the end of the first 17 verses. The entire lineage, the genealogy, it tells you what? The king has arrived. You don't have to keep fighting God for control over your life. You don't have to uh, keep fighting God, uh, battling your anxiety, battling depression. Do you believe the news? See, the essential question of the genealogy or any of the gospel stories is not will you obey, it's do you believe? Do you believe the news? Is it for you? Because if you believe, obedience is eventually gonna come. It's gonna eventually make sense. The gospel isn't about good advice, it's good news. Thirdly, uh, look at the number of generations that it took to fulfill this promise. I mean, we're talking thousands of years. People have been praying for a Savior for thousands of years. Many of them didn't see it in their lifetime. Look at the number of generations that it took to fulfill this promise. What does that mean? That means that the biblical God is not a product of your desires. A God that's a mere product of your desires, what you want, will never be able to disagree with you, will never be able to challenge you, will never be able to operate on his own terms. You see that? This God always fulfills his promise. If God, if God promises, he will fulfill, but he's going to fulfill it in his time, on his terms, through the unfolding of his plan. And sometimes it's going to, he's going to feel distant from you. When you're praying, sometimes God feels distant. Sometimes God feels absent, but he's not. God's promises are always fulfilled on his terms, in his timing. If, the, if God has the power to answer your prayer, would you not leave out the thought that he has the wisdom to know when to answer it? Truth is more amazing 
and more remarkable than fiction. That's the first point. The second point is that we are given a place. Back then, just like our resumes today, people fudge with their genealogies. And so, you know, today, if you worked at company A for a short period of time and you failed there, and you quickly move to company B and you do really well there, and you want to move on to company C, there's a more than likelihood of a chance that you would kind of leave company A off your resume. It was a short stint, you didn't do too well there, and you did really well in company B. A lot of people wouldn't put company A on their resume. They tend to leave out the parts of their resume that don't make them look too good. And in the ancient times, they did the same thing with their genealogies. Herod the Great, which you see a lot in the book of Matthew in the beginning towards the birth of Jesus uh, in the Gospel according to Matthew, he was actually only, he was a tyrant, but he was actually only partly Jewish. So that non-Jewish part, he was actually part Edomite, that non-Jewish part of him made his resume, made his, uh, made his genealogy look weaker. And so what did he do? Um, he removed certain people from his own genealogy. People did that, right? People that he didn't want to look connected to, people that he didn't want relationship with because it lowered his standing, lowered his status. So what he do is he just pretty much X'd it out, but not Jesus, not in this genealogy. That's why it's so important for us to at least look at it. Jesus leaves. Jesus includes intentionally the failures. Jesus includes the broken pieces in his genealogy, which is to say, now remember, this is your resume. You're saying, I'm proud of this. What Jesus is saying in the failures, in the, in the uh, broken pieces, in the shameful pieces of his resume, he's saying, I'm proud of this. For one thing, there are five women in the genealogy. In most genealogies in the ancient times, you didn't put, you didn't include women because women were irrelevant in society in those days. They had no standing. You know, a woman in the ancient times, her testimony wasn't even valid in a judicial court in those days. So women were marginalized. And yet here you see five women included. The second thing you see is that most of these women, they weren't Jewish. They were non-Jews. Verse 3 you have Tamar and Rahab. They were Canaanites. Verse 5, you have Ruth. She was a Moabite. Moabites were the enemy of God's people. And on top of that, some of these women were moral failures. Tamar had tricked her father-in-law to sleep with her so that she could have children. She committed incest, essentially. Rahab was a prostitute. Matthew even mentions King David. Now, we've got to look at King David a little bit. Because if you had a genealogy in the ancient times... The one person that you would want listed in your lineage was David. David was the greatest king of Israel, the greatest king that Israel had ever known and seen. He was a prophet. He was a priest. He worshiped God. He was devout. He was religious. He was wise. He was courageous. David was a man, and he was a Jew. He was a Hebrew. He wrote many of the Psalms that we see in the Bible. He was the ultimate in person. But notice in verse 6, it says, David is the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Matthew actually mentions Bathsheba, not by mentioning her name. And this isn't uh, so that she would, you know, shame or disgrace. She found, he found uh, uh, Bathsheba so disgraceful. It wasn't a slight against Bathsheba. He was actually slamming David. He was bringing David down. That's what he was doing. He wants you to remember a time when David who was a king, acted cowardly, 
and committed adultery and cheated and schemed and lied and conspired. And he had Uriah, who's one of his mighty men. Uriah was one of the people who helped David get to the throne. He basically betrayed him and had him murdered so that he could marry Bathsheba. And so the author carefully and intentionally mentions not Bathsheba by name because then you could overlook it. He says, Uriah's wife. With one line in the first chapter of the first gospel, Matthew's saying, here's the great King David, and he is no different in listing than a prostitute, than someone who committed incest. You see? That means that the people who are listed here have as much of a name, they have as much of a place as a king, as a poet, as a scholar. That, the gospel has this way of equalizing kings and prostitutes. They're saying, you're the same. We all need God's grace. And if you believe you need God's grace, and if you desire to experience God's grace, then you all, we all have a place. We all have a name. The genealogy, if you look at Jesus' genealogy, you see the immoral, the incestuous, the prostitute, the adulteress, the murderer. They have as much of a name as a king, a prince, somebody who's been faithful. We all need God's grace. The gospel is good news. Think about it. If gospel, if the genealogy only included the good people, would the gospel be good news? The gospel is good news because it includes the broken people. It includes the suffering people. It includes the sinful and the prostitutes and the incestuous because the author is saying is maybe you're not as bad as these guys, but even they are included. That means you can be included, you see. Anyone can be in, but only through the grace of God. It doesn't matter your pedigree. It doesn't matter how you lived. It doesn't matter what you did. It's about Jesus' pedigree, what Jesus did and how he lived. Anyone can be in, but only through the grace of God because we, everybody has equal dignity, even women, right? Women listed with kings here, and yet we all need God's grace. We're all sinners. We're all sufferers. If you look at the genealogy, Matthew intentionally includes the socially marginalized, the culturally marginalized, the, the morally marginalized to show us what? That no matter where you've been, no matter how far you've run, no matter how lost you are, no matter how confused you may be, no matter how ungrateful you walked in, if you are in Jesus, he is proud of you. He is proud of you. He says, you're mine. The coming of Jesus overturns all of our values. There are people in this room who shun certain coworkers because they don't get you anywhere. It's just a reality. When I walk into the office, there are a number of people that work under me. There are a number of people who probably provide no social value to me. And you're either going to, if you're just including the people who work for you to get you successful, if you're just including people who uh, can raise your status because they're successful. And you, you know, it, it starts very early. It starts in like middle school because when you're in middle school, there are certain people you stay away from. You just want to stay away from them. And that can be emotionally scarring for some of you if you've been one of those people or it's emotionally scarring for the person that you've actually uh, turned your back on. But the thing is, those people, it's almost like they carry some sort of social disease. And the closer you get to that person, if you hang with them for a while, you will catch that disease. 
And it carries over into work, it carries over into college, it carries, and it also carries into the church. And the thing is, no matter where you are, I mean, we have family members, there are uncles that you don't talk about, right? There are certain family members that you'd rather, you'd rather not them be in your genealogy. If, they, if, you're, if you meet somebody and they say, hey, so uh, what's your father? Who's, what's your father's name? What did your mother do? And they start to talk about your family. There are certain people you'd rather not mention because they may have a reputation. And yet Jesus includes all of them. He's saying, I'm proud of you. That should overturn your values. You are that person. We are those people, and yet Jesus says, you're mine. I'm proud to have you. I work through the brokenness. I work through the shame. I work through the sin. If somebody like King David's life can completely blow up, that means that any of our lives can completely blow up. But if somebody like David's life that completely blow up can be renewed and restored, that means anybody's life can, who's blown up can be restored and renewed. If these people can be in, then you can be in. We have a place. The third thing, um, very short point, um, the third point is uh, it gives us rest. It guarantees and assures us rest. The word is shalom, a shalom rest. Now, I look around. You're all very bright people. You can do some math. You're going to have to do some math with me, okay? Verse 17, thus there were 14 generations to David, then 14 to the exile, then 14 to Christ. 14 generations right? That's two sevens, right? That's two sevens, two times seven, right? Then you have another 14. That's another two times seven, right? That's another two sevens. Then you have another 14. That's another two sevens. You add that up, what do you get? You get six sets of seven generations. Matthew says Jesus was born in the seventh cycle. Very important. Why? Because in the Old Testament law, you worked six days, then you rested on the seventh. You worked six years of those cycles. You rested on the seventh. That means you literally let the ground, it was, it was God's way of letting the ground heal because it was an agrarian culture. And so you let the ground rest for a seventh year. You did nothing. You just ate of what you stored up. It's kind of a reminiscent of returning to the Garden of Eden, letting the, the land go fallow and, and just kind of grow wild. And then you, you rested six cycles of those seven-year cycles. And on the seventh cycle, right? That's the 49th year you rested. You rested an additional 50th year. That was called the Jubilee. 50th year. And the reason why that was instituted in the Bible, and by the way, there is no historically recorded account of anybody, of any incident or any time when the Jews actually obeyed the law of Jubilee. There's no written account very amazing. I can go into that uh, in detail, right, and tell you a little bit more about that. But the whole point of this is that six is a number for incompletion, work, slavery. So you worked six days, you worked six years, you worked six cycles of years. But at the end here, the seventh cycle, the seventh cycle, seven is the number for perfection. Seven is the number for completion. In this agrarian society, you let the land lie fallow. You letting the land, even the land and the animals would rest and heal. And on that day of Jubilee, in the year of Jubilee, you would set your slaves. If you had slaves, you would set them free. You, if, if somebody owed you a debt, you would cancel the debt. If somebody borrowed something and didn't return it to you, you let them have it. If somebody uh, did something wrong to you, you forgave them. It was reminiscent of a return to the Garden of Eden, this deep, holistic peace. 
and justice, where all that was wrong gets overturned and has become right again, all right in the world. They call that rest, shalom. That's the shalom. So jubilee meant freedom. Jubilee meant forgiveness. Jubilee meant peace. Jubilee meant restoration. And so if you have restoration and forgiveness and peace, there was rest. And Matthew here says Jesus ushered in this seventh cycle of jubilee because Jesus Christ is the jubilee. There's no recorded incident of the Jews ever obeying that law. And Jesus then embodied that law. And all the days and all the years and all the generations then point to his return, his coming. Because when Jesus does return, the world will be free again for good. All injustice, racial injustice, social injustice, economic injustice, every financial injustice, it's going to come to an end. You know, at, at the end of Lord of the Rings, you have Frodo. Frodo wakes up at the end of the trilogy. Uh, the climax of the story, the ring is destroyed, and Frodo wakes up. And uh, he, he turns and he sees Gandalf. Now, Gandalf died. Gandalf died earlier. And so he sees Gandalf and he says, wait, I thought you were dead. Well, then I thought I was dead myself. Has everything, is everything sad going to come untrue? Rest. This is the end of trying to control your life. This is the end of you trying to prove yourself in the world. This is the end of you striving to build a kingdom for yourself. It's the beginning of surrender, rest. Surrender to the king who has it all worked out. Surrender to the king who has come and he will restore and he will renew. And he says, behold, I am coming soon. I am making all things new. The world says you got to work at it. Religion even says you got to work at it. you got to prove yourself. you got to rise up. you got to slave over this. And that's the reason why we're so anxious, and that's the reason why we're so depressed in our world today. It's the reason why there are so many hurts in our communities. Jesus, on the other hand, the gospel says, rest in me. He says on the cross, it is finished. You know what it is finished means in the actual original uh, language? He says, the debt has been paid. The transaction has been made. Everything is forgiven. It's finished. There is your peace. There is your healing. So how do you get it? Because we talked about fulfillment. We talked about um, uh, having a place. We talked about receiving ultimate, deep, holistic rest in our lives. How do you get it? Where do you get the power to live this way? If the narrative of Jesus is just a story, if the narrative of Jesus is not true, then Jesus at best is just an example for you. And the thing is, if you've lived that way, if you've lived looking at Jesus as just an example, then you're working, you're doing the work, and that's why you're so tired, even if you've grown up in the church, you see that? If that's your view of God, if that's your view of religion, that's what religion says. Religion says work. Jesus is just an example. You look up to him, you follow his example at best. Sacrifice for others, love other people, forgive. You gotta just forgive, you gotta just, you gotta just love, you gotta just serve. You have to bear the weight. You have to prove yourself. Then your resume is of utmost importance. What you do is of utmost importance because you are representing yourself and you then are saving yourself. Do you see that? What's the central story? What's the central story of the gospel? the central story of the genealogy. The true king, the most high God, came down. 
and he lived the life that you should live. That's why you could be, that's why we have a place. Because he already lived that life. And then he died the death that you should die. He paid the debt. He paid the penalty. He did this to save his people. He did this because he loves his people. And it wasn't despite the sin and the brokenness and the suffering and the slavery and the death. He did it through the sin and the suffering and the slavery and the, and the suffering and the death. And so Jesus, this long-awaited king, the high king, suffered, bled, and died. You know, Jesus wasn't born on a throne. He was born in a manger. How many thrones are there in the world? Not many. How many mangers are there in the world? They're everywhere. He was born common, lower than common. And so he was homeless, and he was friendless, and he was abandoned, and he was arrested, and he was killed. When you look at the cross, look at Jesus. He's laboring for you. He's working for you. He's groaning and struggling and sweating and weeping on the cross and suffering on the cross for you. And on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what he's really saying there is, I just lost the Father. Why? So you could have the Father. And because I lost the Father, I've been forsaken so that you could be found. I've lost the promise. The Father has left me. I've lost the promise. He is the promise so that you could have the promise. I've lost my place. I've lost my status so that you could have a place, so that you would have a status. You see that? So he could be proud of you. And so on the cross, he's saying, I'm cosmically laboring to pay your debt perfectly, full righteousness, never sinned, so that you don't have to work to earn God's favor anymore. You can just rest in me. Look at the beauty of Jesus. He was humiliated for us, broken for us, crucified for us. How, do you, how does ultimate beauty become even more beautiful? How can you do that? It was through his suffering. It was through his shame. It was through his brokenness. It was through his death. And that's why Jesus included the immoral and the sinful and the broken and the shameful. It's because he's saying, I don't do my work despite their immorality, despite the sin. I don't just cut through it and fight against it. I work through the sin, through the immorality, through your brokenness, through even your shamefulness. He works through it. God works through the immoral, the sinful, the broken, the shameful, the death. And the genealogy shows us that there is no brokenness, there is no sin, there is no shame that can overcome the wisdom of God's plan, the righteousness of God's Son, the love of Jesus on the cross, and the power of Jesus' resurrection. There is no sin that can overcome that. And if God can work through Jesus' death, Jesus' cross, Jesus' suffering, to bring good news and salvation to the world. Is there any darkness in your life? Do you feel rejected at times? Out of the inner circle? Is there brokenness in your life? Are you in sin? Are there things that you were just absolutely just broken by and just ashamed of? Do you feel helpless? You gotta hear Jesus embrace you and say, I'm proud of you. Rest in me. I'm proud of you. The author of Hebrews, one of the books in the New Testament, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Behold the beauty of Jesus 
and the love of Jesus. Be found in Jesus. Be saved through Jesus. His story is a story to which all other stories point. So the real question is, is it true? Do you believe it? Plunge your pursuits. If you believe it, plunge your pursuits and your failures and your successes, your suffering and your joy, your emptiness and the things that fill you. Plunge all those things into the grace of God and he will renew it for his glory and for your good. Let's pray together.